James 1, 5 through 11 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave in the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. It flower falls and it beauty perishes. So also would the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. All right, give it up for Matt. Great job reading. (laughs) Reading the Bible for us. I love it. Uh, Welcome back, everyone. It's been a few Mondays since we've been in this room. The last time we met, I think, was like October 24th. And so we've had a few Mondays off, but we're going to jump right back into this James series that we've been slowly but surely working our way through. It's going to take us all the way through to April to finish it. And so tonight, um, I want to do a quick kind of recap of what we talked about last time we were together. So the last time in October we met, uh, we walked through James kind of opening four verses of his letter to us and where he called all his listeners to kind of adopt this new perspective, this new uh, mindset, this new attitude in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their trials. James began his letter by um, highlighting what God is seeking to accomplish in the midst of, of the trials and sufferings of our life, that God is using those trials, those tests, that suffering um, to form us, mature us more into the image of Jesus. So James, he kind of reframes suffering for us, where he says, you don't enjoy your suffering. It's still hard. There's still brokenness in it, but you know all the while, mysteriously, paradoxically, God is working in it to mature you in your likeness to Jesus. And so he calls us to that. Or James would say that the way to kind of spiritual wholeness is often brought about through the trials of our lives. So James is highlighting this truth. Spiritual wholeness is, is brought about through the trials of our life. Um, and James would say that we can, we can have joy the, the text actually means to rejoice. We can rejoice in our trials because this reality is true. God is good and God is sovereign over all things. So he's saying you can rest in God, mysteriously knowing that he's working in our suffering to bring about our formation because we know who God is. That's where our ultimate hope is in. It's the deep-rooted joy in God's character and sovereignty that begins to allow us to suffer well. And so tonight, James, he, he's going to sort of continue on this theme of enduring trials with this heavenly perspective by pointing us to the source, which you see it on the screen, the source of this new perspective, which is God's wisdom. Because many would probably, receiving James's letter, you read those first four verses where he says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, knowing that God is using your trials to produce endurance in you to mature you, to, to uh, form you more into the image of Jesus. And you hear that and you're like, well, how in the heck? Like right now, that sounds pretty easy to understand, but I'm suffering right now and it's hard for me to believe that. So James, or James is probably thinking, that's how they're gonna respond to those first four verses. Now let me point them to the source that's gonna transform their perspective, which is God's wisdom. And so uh, if there's one kind of truth that's on the screen that we're going to nail down tonight that I think James is kind of calling us as his hearers to understand, it's this, that spiritual wholeness, that is the goal of trials, is only achieved with God's wisdom. You will never see your trials as a pathway to endurance and formation to Jesus if you don't have God's wisdom. 
You'll only see them as a crutch. There is no joy in our trials unless we have the wisdom of God. In other words, you're, not, you're actually not able to manufacture or muster up this new perspective. You cannot, by your own willpower, have this new attitude, this kind of flip, that, that this light switch that flips in your heart. It's otherworldly. James is saying this, this perspective in the midst of your suffering, it's a gift of God's grace that you must receive. God has to grant it to you. So with that in mind, I'm gonna pray for us really quick as we jump into this text and we begin to work through it together. But Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. Um, God, I just think about Isaiah 66, where you say, to whom, this is the person to whom I look, those who are humble and contrite and the man who, who, who trembles at my word. And so Jesus, as we come to your word, would you speak to us? Make us more like yourself Holy Spirit, would you give us understanding? Would you help our hearts to connect with our heads and connect with our hands? And Jesus, ultimately, would we love you more as we study your word together? It's in your name I pray and ask these things. Amen. And so uh, let's read our passage again. We're going to slowly begin to work through it. Uh, beginning at, at, at verse 5, it says this. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to them. But let him ask in faith, Without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea. It's driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. And so again, um, it starts with this, this statement, if any one of you lacks wisdom, and that word lacks is meant to connect us to the end of verse 4, where he says, um, your, your faith will be complete, perfect. And then it says, lacking in nothing. And then he says in verse five immediately, those who lack wisdom. So he's connecting the thought. So we would read this and be like, this seems like a whole different kind of statement, this, uh, this whole different point that James is trying to make. It's, it feels kind of random and sporadic, but, but there are some ways that James is trying to connect his thought from the beginning of his text. Um, and that word helps us know that. But as we begin this next section, as we read this, I really want us to think about two words, orthodoxy versus orthopraxy. So you'll see it on the screen, a quick definition. I talked about this in the introduction a few weeks ago. But orthodoxy, if we were to simplify it, it simply means the correct belief or what we believe. When it comes to theology or kind of interpreting scripture, orthodoxy means that we have a certain understanding, an orthodox truth. It's, it's, it's what everyone believes ultimately. Um, and then orthopraxy means something different though. It means correct conduct. It means a correct way of life. It, I hit on these words in our introduction a few weeks ago because it's one of James's main desires in his, in his letter is to connect these two things. To connect our head with, with our, uh, our head with our heart and then ultimately with our hands. So what you believe about God should impact how, how, how you respond, how you live your life. That is James's number one goal in his book. And, and the, the truth is, many of us probably know some people in our lives who are really knowledgeable, who are really smart when it comes to the Bible, but they may fail in actually putting it into practice. We say, practice what you preach. And we may even experience this in, in, our, in our own walks with Jesus. I know I do. I know it doesn't always align perfectly. There sometimes seems to be a disconnect between our head, what we believe about God, our hearts, what we're feeling in the moment, and in our hands, what we practically do. And so that's exactly what's, what it seems to be James's concern as we begin our passage tonight. It may be easy to understand this truth 
young Jewish Christians, it may be easy for you to understand that God is using our suffering to form us, but it may be hard to actually practically put that into practice in your life while you're suffering. Therefore, we can, let's, uh, let's talk about what the source of this. And so, um, because it may, it may be a wholly kind of different thing to begin to live out suffering well. And so James is saying, uh, the people who had been reading James might have been like, okay, James, we get it, um, but that's easier said than done. James, it's easy to say that when you're not suffering. It's easier to say that when you're not in the midst of trials and tests of your faith. Because the truth is, orthodoxy doesn't always necessarily lead to orthopraxy. Believing the right thing doesn't always lead to correct action. It doesn't lead to a proper response. And so James, he wants us to begin um, by pointing his readers to the necessity of wisdom. You need wisdom if you're going to walk this out. And as I mentioned at the beginning, this, this, this attitude, it's, it's, it's a gift of God's grace. You cannot manufacture it. You cannot muster it up. If we're going to be able to walk in joy in the midst of tests and trials and, and tribulations, we're going to need God's wisdom. We're, and that wisdom, we're going to need to receive from God. And so tonight's message is going to break down into a few points for us. Four really quick points. Um, we're, I'll say them really quick and then we'll walk through them one at a time. But first, the request for wisdom. Secondly, the God of wisdom. Thirdly, the faith required for wisdom. And then lastly, I'm saying these really fast. They'll all come one at a time. Lastly, the practice of wisdom. So the, the request for wisdom, the God of wisdom, the faith required for wisdom. Lastly, the practice of wisdom. And so this passage, it, it doesn't really unpack neatly. It's not systematic in its approach. Ancient Near Eastern literature doesn't tend to work that way. Uh, but I do think these points, they're going to help us kind of serve as a guide as we journey through this, this little passage together with this overarching thing that James is trying to call us to this spiritual wholeness with Jesus. And so let's hit on that first point. It's on the screen, the, requ the request for wisdom. So look again at the beginning of verse 5 where he says this, Now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. Like I already mentioned, James is he's seeing the disconnect that people may experience living out this attitude of enduring joy in the midst of your suffering. Um, and so he's going to begin to call his readers, all of us, even 2,000 years later, to see our need for God to do something. For, we're going to need God's wisdom. We're going to need God's perspective if we're going to walk this out. But when we talk about wisdom, what exactly does James mean when he says the word that we translate as wisdom? There's, there's a myriad of definitions in our cultural moment um, that, that are kind of thrown on us. And usually when we talk about wisdom, it's kind of linked with a sort of kind of intellectual ascent. That's what we think about when we think about wisdom. Or maybe there, uh, a simple definition, if you were to look in the dictionary, um, when it would say people that have good judgment. People who can see something happening and they respond appropriately. Um, but you see, James, um, he has a different understanding of this word wisdom than we do. Um, James is actually, um, usually people think about James as a New Testament epistle, and that's just a genre that means letter. But it's more than that. James has also been historically viewed as an, uh, under the genre of wisdom. Ancient Near Eastern wisdom. So uh, James, he is highly, what I mean by that, I'll explain. James is highly influenced by the Old Testament wisdom works, books like the Psalms, the books of Ecclesiastes, Songs of Solomon, um, and then most importantly, Proverbs. 
All throughout the letter of James, you'll see allusions to this book of Proverbs. Um, and James, James was a Jewish believer in Jesus Christ who grew up hearing ancient Jewish wisdom literature. And, and for the Jews, they had a different understanding of this word wisdom than we do. And um, I know this, I'm going to give you a definition. And this may be an oversimplification of wisdom, but I think it's going to help us as we journey through this. It'll be on the screen. It says, this is theologian and teacher Kenneth Boa. He says in his book on uh, Proverbs, wisdom is skill in the art of living. That's what the Jews would have thought when they think about the word wisdom. It's skill in the art of living. It's not just understanding something well or correctly, but beginning to apply that knowledge into day-to-day, real, practical ways. It's a, it's a skill. It's cultivated. It's the ability to apply the truth you've learned into the ordinary areas of your life. And so you, you see, wisdom, um, it's, it's necessary for, for our maturation, for our formation into holistic followers of Jesus. We need, we need God's wisdom because wisdom is what helps align our head to our hearts. So wisdom is what takes what we know and it applies it to our hearts and then it begins to flesh itself out in our hands and what we do. So it's kind of the missing ingredient for James. And so if that is what James had in mind when he's talking about wisdom, it makes sense why he would say this here because he's trying to connect the dots for his readers. He's trying to connect the dots of how to practically live out joyful endurance that leads to spiritual wholeness. That's James's desire. You need God's spirit to grant you this skill. You, you need this gift from God to live appropriately and um, to live in per- appropriate response to God's revelation. And so that's why James, he calls them not only to see this need, but, the, but then to, to, to respond, to ask God to grant them this wisdom and ask him until he does it. It's meant to be persistent. And so it's the same for us. If we see the necessity for wisdom in our growth spiritually and in our ability to withstand and endure the tests and trials of life, we need to desperately cry out for it too. And here's a small caveat. This this doesn't just mean when we're asking for wisdom, that verse five. James is making a practical appeal to prayer. He means any request. He's not just means just wisdom. When you need wisdom, ask God, but when you need peace, don't ask God. That's not what he's saying. If, the, if James is saying, if this is something that God is willing to offer you, but you don't have it, the proper response is to come to God in humility and ask him to give it to you. So th- we're going to talk about wisdom tonight, but you could apply this to a lot of different areas, um, like peace, grace. Um, God, help me withstand this. Give me endurance, because you're the God of endurance. You're the God of long-suffering. So again, this is, that's just a small caveat, so I hope y'all know. This isn't only about wisdom, but that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. And so that's the first point, the request for wisdom. Secondly, the God of wisdom. The God of wisdom. Let's keep reading in our passage. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. For James's readers, this is where it's going to begin to get obvious that James is talking about the Old Testament. They're there immediately as Jewish Christians who grew up hearing the law, who grew up hearing the Old Testament. They would immediately knew James is talking about Proverbs here. Because look at me with Proverbs 2 verse 6. It says this, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. 
Sounds super familiar to our text tonight, doesn't it? But James, he's not just drawing his leaders back to Proverbs, though. James is also clearly influenced by his half-brother, Jesus. Where Jesus says in Matthew 7, look, we'll read it together, beginning at verse 7. Jesus says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who, who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son gives, asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, small caveat, that's how Jesus describes us, you who are evil, um, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So this exhortation that James is giving to his people to ask God for wisdom, it's merely a continuation of what the Jews have always believed and what Jesus called his followers to do. You're just continuing this, this thought. So for James, the Old Testament writers, and even Jesus, we confidently come to God and ask him for his wisdom, not because, we just, not because we're told to do it, but because of who we believe God to be. So what, what motivates us is what we believe about God. In other words, prayer is rooted in, in this term, the, theology proper. And really, I don't want to get too theological, but theology proper is just a, a, a phrase for the study of God, the study of God's attributes, what God is like, who God is. And for James, he's saying prayer is rooted in what we believe about God. So if we believe God to be something, in this case, generous and ungrudging, um, we should, that should lead us to response, a response to asking for wisdom. Ask him what we need because he's generous to give it to us. But it, so it says God is generous and unbegrudging in his giving. And all, I, all that means, I'm going to sum it up, is that God is not only eager to grant you this request, but ungrudgingly means that God isn't at conflict on whether to bestow it. We can sum it up as God gives us wisdom with a singleness of intent. In other words, God simply gives without any hesitation. There's no kind of conflict within himself. He he is willing to give it without delay. That's what that means. It's who our God is. He is generous and eager to grant his people what they need to live their life in obedience and devotion to him. He'll give it to them. If it's going to lead you to devotion and obedience, he'll give it to you if you ask for it. And John Calvin, he puts it this way in his his commentary of James on this verse. He says this, Since we see that the Lord does not so require from us what is above our strength, but that he is ready to help us, provided we ask, let us therefore learn whenever he commands anything to ask of him the power to perform it. So James is is exhorting us to ask God for the power that is necessary for us to actually live out what God has called us to do, enduring suffering and trials well. If what you, God is not, God is saying, what you need to accomplish this, I'm willing to give you if you would just ask for it. So for James, we need to, we only need to make the request. That's second point. Thirdly, the faith required for wisdom, the faith required for wisdom Look at verse 6 really quickly. But let him ask in faith without doubting. But let him ask in faith without doubting. So James, he adds a condition to this request. James wants to be clear, not vague, in what he means in, in asking for God for wisdom. This isn't some magic genie in the bottle. 
that you're trying to kind of manufacture or kind of uh, manipulate to get what you want, but it's, it's rooted in a deep, settled trust in who God is and God's ability to grant it. Simply speaking, there's an attitude that we have that we need to come to God with in our request if God's going to grant us our request. And James says that that attitude is to ask God in faith without doubting. And what he means when he says faith is this sense of active faith. We know that one of James's primary themes in his book, if you were here in the introduction, is to align belief with practice. That's what he means by active faith. Active faith in our asking is to begin to mimic what we believe about God. That if God is, if God is willing to simply give us, without, give, or give us wisdom without wavering, Therefore, we ask in simple trust without doubting. So again, we're beginning to mimic God, who God gives us with singleness of intent. There's no hesitation. We come to God asking in faith with no hesitation, no doubt. But he's not, he doesn't mean doubt in the sense of, oh, you should always come to God with 100% allegiance and faith in him. Never doubt anything about him. That's not what James means. We obviously know that because the New Testament doesn't teach that. James, as we'll journey through this text, he'll help us understand what he means by, by doubt. But I don't want to jump in, in, into it too late because he'll hit on it a little bit in a, in a few verses. So active faith is taking God at his word about himself and trusting who he says he is without this hesitation in your spirit. And he begins his explanation of doubt with an illustration. An illustration as we continue in our text, it says this in verse 6, For the doubter is like a surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from God. Have any of y'all looked at the ocean surface on a windy day? What, or, or, or looked at the ocean in the midst of changing swells? The shape of the water and even the texture on top of the water is always changing when it's windy. One minute it can be calm and flat. The next minute it can be turbulent and wavy. It's because the ocean surface, it lives at the whim of the direction of the wind and the strength of the wind. As the wind blows and changes, so does the tide in the sea. So does the surface of the sea. And that's what a doubter is like to James. They are constantly tossed to and fro by ever-changing circumstance. Their, their motives of their heart, their ever-changing feelings and emotions, allured by the wisdom of this world to trust in it rather than God. In other words, there's another theologian who, in his commentary on James, Douglas Moose, says that the doubter, they'll long for God's wisdom one day and the, and, the, and the world's wisdom the next. That's what he means by ever-changing, like the surging sea. In, in other words, their faith is inconsistent. Inconsistent. And they're like this because, James is saying, you're like this because you lack an anchor for your soul. To steady you, to help you remain in the ever-changing landscape of life with Jesus in a broken world. This anchor of steadfast, enduring trust in, in the goodness and the sovereign rule of God. That grounds every believer amidst the storms of their life. In the ever-changing circumstances. So when circumstances, trials, and sufferings arise, instead of running to God with integrity, sincerity, and consistency, they're going to be inconsistent. Constantly influenced to run any direction that their flesh draws them to, 
the world kind of allures them into or that Satan begins to provide them. They'll run to that. But James, he doesn't stop here. He's going to continue to expand on his definition of doubt by comparing active faith and doubt. And after his illustration in verse 8, he says this of the doubter. Or in verse 8, he says this of the doubter. They're being double-minded, unstable in all his ways. I want you to look at, uh, highlight the word double-minded. James, in his letter, he uses a Greek word that many believe that James created in this letter. The truth is, this word double-minded that we translate, it doesn't show up anywhere else in all of ancient Greek literature except for the book of James. And it comes in two places in James. James 1.8 and James 4.8. And this mysterious new Greek word is dipsukos. And it means, it literally means double-souled. So what James means when he uses this new word is that this person has divided souls. They are divided in their loyalties within, their allegiances within. There is, as it were, this ongoing internal conflict, this unsettled dispute going on within themselves. It's like they have two minds, each of them wanting to go their own way. Now the word, it may be Greek, or new to Greek literature, but it's not new to Old Testament. All over the Old Testament, um, over and over, God um, calls his followers to serve him with their whole heart. In the Old Testament, in verses like Psalm 12, or chapters Psalm 12 and Hosea 10, it, God actually condemns a man for having a divided heart towards him. So the Jewish believers receiving this letter from James, they're familiar with this language of being double-souled, divided in their allegiances to God. And not just the Old Testament says this, but James, again, he's influenced, again, by his half-brother Jesus. Where Jesus sums up the whole, the whole Old Testament law by saying, love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, undivided. And, and then love your neighbor as yourself. So let me give you some examples. So again, you could hear double-souled and you're like, I don't really know what that means. You're, you're being too heady for me, too theological. Um, but here's some examples. The double-minded or the double-souled man will come to God asking for wisdom. All the while, instead of waiting for God to grant him wisdom, he begins to take matters into his own hands. Trusting in his own wisdom, his own craftiness. And they'll, and, or he'll begin to fall into the wisdom of the world and trust that instead. Another example. The double-souled man will know that God is the source of all peace. Come to him asking God for peace. All the while running to what the world says will grant him peace manufacturing this kind of instant pot piece that may work for a season, but it's not going to last. The double-souled man will come to God asking for forgiveness and mercy, all the while harboring anger and resentment in his own heart towards those who have wronged him, refusing to give them um, grace. That's a parable of Jesus. So you see the inconsistency? The instability that the, that the, that the verse talks about, unstable in all his ways? I could have given more examples. I hope that I've made it a little bit more clear. But coming to God, saying that we trust in who he is, asking for what he longs to give us, all the while divided in our allegiances, our loyalties and trust to him. James says that that person, they can't expect to receive anything from God. Again, it, it, it brings together all that James has been saying. Without the anchor of steadfast, enduring trust in who God is, that God is good in all that he does, 
sovereign or in control over both the joys and the pains in our life, without that anchor for our souls, we will be inconsistent. We will be unstable, tossed to and fro by every circumstance. One moment we'll trust God in what he's doing. The next moment we'll be found running to the patterns, the schemes, the plans, and the wisdom of the world. So without this heavenly perspective, this wisdom from God, this gift of God's grace, that's our lot. That's where we're headed. Unstable, double-minded, tossed to and fro. And that's when James leads to his last point, the practice of wisdom. The practice of wisdom. So in verses 9 through 11, James is going to kind of bring home this point he's been hitting on since verse 2 with another illustration. We'll read it together, beginning at verse 9. It says this, Believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them. And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. They will fade away like the little flower in the field. The hot sun uh, rises um, and the grass withers, the little flower droops and falls, the, and its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all of their achievements. For James, we'll see throughout um, his whole letter, all throughout the, the letter of James, we'll, we'll, we'll be journeying through for the rest of the year. He'll use that uh, wealth is often a test of one's allegiance to God. A test of their perspective regarding the world and their life circumstances. God, he'll say wealth is one of the main tests that God uses to test our allegiance. Money itself can divide the, the allegiances of a person and it can, it can begin to influence them to forsake confident, steadfast hope in God and his kingdom rather than the world's kingdom. And a poor man can be enticed and pulled to forsake trusting God by beginning to believe that if I only had more money, I wouldn't have these problems. So it's not just the rich man he's condemning. The poor man can say, if I just had more money, I wouldn't have these problems, not knowing that uh, JC said it right, more, more money, more problems. It's just the truth. Um, and then the rich man, he can say, can be enticed and pulled, lured away from their trust in God alone to begin to trust in their wealth, their success, their influence, and begin to find their hope and security in those things rather than um, Yahweh. So James, he calls both the poor and rich to begin to boast, or in other words, the Greek literally means to take joy in their situation in light of this new perspective, this heavenly perspective. Doesn't that sound familiar? The heavenly perspective of joy in the midst of the circumstances of life, James 1, verses 2 through 4, it requires the wisdom of God, verses 5 through 8, to view the status of our wealth properly, verses 9 through 11. So viewing our wealth with God's wisdom or God's perspective means that the poor um, may recognize that they lack significance and influence right now, but that if they're in Christ Jesus, they have honor and status before God right now. And that they will be honored eternally with him in heaven. Their lot will be reversed as the last will become first in God's kingdom. So that's a heavenly perspective. That's only achieved through God's wisdom. You cannot manufacture that. Viewing our wealth with God's wisdom means that the rich will begin to understand that their status, their significance and influence, they may have a lot of it right now. It does not equate status and honor before God. And to know that their wealth, it's a gift from God that can be taken from them um, at any moment and it will be taken from them at death. It's here now and it's gone the next. It's like the flower in the field. Um, one day it's here, the next day it could be completely gone. In other words, their, 
James is saying there's, there's no U-Haul behind your hearse on the day that you head to your funeral. You're not taking that stuff with you. So James is saying transform, reframe your mindset. A practical walking in this wisdom means this. So therefore, they should not rest in their success. They should not rest in their, their um, riches for life, joy, and hope. It will only lead to, to, to eternal condemnation if they do. But if they begin to see their wealth properly, this practical application of wisdom that they're living out, rather than rejoicing in it, rather than resting in it, they will begin to see it properly and, and, and cling to God as their hope, pledge their allegiance to him alone, um, and then begin to leverage their wealth for his kingdom. That's heavenly wisdom. And that's only possible through God by his grace, granting them that wisdom. Both the rich and the poor need this new reframe, this new perspective. And so as the band begins to work their way up, there's a lot, there's a lot we covered tonight. Um, that was, I wish I had more time. I wish I could have taken weeks on these passages. Um, but I do hope that we begin to see some of these practical truths that James is he's seeking to help us understand tonight in his letter as we read it almost 2,000 years later. And I mentioned this at the beginning of our time together. You probably wrote it down, but by now you've forgotten. But this truth that the spiritual wholeness that is the goal of trials, it's only achieved with God's wisdom. If we wish to be spiritually whole individuals, and what I mean by that is people experiencing life, joy, and peace with God in the midst of their ever-changing circumstances of life, we need God's wisdom. We need God to grant us this gift by his grace. If you long to endure um, the, the suffering with, of life with steadfast, unwavering faith in God, a faith that can withstand the pains of life, you need a wisdom that's otherworldly. You need the wisdom of, of Jesus. You need the, the wisdom of Jesus that while Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, was resolute in the confidence, in his confidence in God's goodness and in God's control. You need the wisdom of Jesus that while a boat was being tossed to and fro by the waves of a large storm, he was found in, in the bottom asleep in the midst of a storm. You need a wisdom of Jesus that while he um, was in the garden before his capture, he can pray saying, God, not my will, but yours be done. Knowing that his suffering was the way to glory. Having the wisdom of Jesus is that while he was on the cross, he looks at those who are mocking him, spitting on him, dividing lots for his clothes, and he prays that God would forgive them. That kind of wisdom looks radically different than the wisdom that the world says leads to wholeness. That wisdom, the, their wisdom, the world's wisdom, it's gonna overpromise, but it underdelivers. Their wisdom gives you no anchor for your soul, no, nothing to satisfy you. Their wisdom longs to deform you spiritually. So if you get anything from tonight's passage, tonight's message, I hope it's a growing discontentment. Discontentment that leads you to run to God's presence and begin to beg him for his wisdom believing that God is eager and generous to grant it to you and give it to you when you come to him with an undivided heart of allegiance to him. I'll pray for us and we'll worship. Father, I thank you for this time in your word. Um, Jesus, we read this and we're challenged by it. And um, I know I am. And God, I just pray for these students that I hope they didn't hear tonight's message and, and, and immediately think of things they need to do 
um, but that they would recognize that the power that they need in their life with you is only found in your presence. And so Jesus, would they be quick to run to your presence to find the wisdom that they need in life, the peace that they need in life, mercy that they need, grace that they need with undivided allegiance, an undivided soul before you. Um, and that they would begin to experience the spiritual wholeness that your half-brother James wanted us to walk in. It's in your name I pray and ask these things. Amen.